crash face first into the tiffin, you chinless fintons. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Thank you everybody in Ireland for the wonderful feedback from my book, which came out in Ireland last week. It was lovely to, to share the stories with you, to share something with you that I've been working on for so long, that I put so much time and care into. So genuinely from the bottom of my heart, thank you for going out and getting that book. And for the people of England, Scotland and Wales, for the good old cracking tens, it's available in yearbook shops tomorrow. Topographia Hibernica, my new collection of short stories. And you can get it as audiobook, everybody. Because I really put I put a lot of care into the audiobook too. To make it not just an audiobook. I composed a soundtrack to it. and Performed the stories in a certain way. So that you're, you're getting a different experience to, if you read it in your hands. So this week's episode is actually pre-recorded. I'm speaking to you from the past last week because right now I'm on tour from the bottom of England up to Scotland across to the north of Ireland down to Dublin eight or nine dates which is basically that's just travelling and gigging and travelling and gigging and then any available time off I'm spent doing interviews with the press sitting down with papers magazines radios all that shit all the shit you have to do when you put out a book or put out an album or put out whatever have to do your press obligations what I am looking forward to is those those fully tumescent English breakfast sausages that you get in hotels. In Ireland, our sausages are kind of soft, but in England, their sausages are very firm and they have a little snap to them. Now, I do prefer Irish sausages, but it's a nice little treat in England to have those tumescent British sausages. All the hotels look the same now. It's all, Everything's fucking generic. So when I sit down at the hotel buffet, when I'm on tour... I have my headphones in all the time so I can't hear when people are talking. So I, I, I really don't know what country I'm in until I eat the sausages in the morning. And you know that you're in England or Scotland or Wales when you're down at the breakfast buffet and you bite into your sausage. And to quote the food critic A.A. A. Gill, it feels like biting down on an occupied condom. So I'm not going to have time to record a podcast. I'll be gigging, travelling, doing fucking press interviews and eating fully tumescent English sausages in the breakfast buffets of generic hotels with a lot of businessmen. Last time, not the last time, but about three years ago, I was in some English hotel at a breakfast buffet. I took my earphones out, my eavesdropped on a table of business people, and they were Christian business people. They were a mixture of American people and English people, and they were hardcore Christians, but they were Christians and also, like, financiers or bankers or something. And... They were talking about a business meeting, but then also praying and asking for Jesus to come with them to the business meeting, like dead fucking serious, like holding hands and saying to each other, later today in the acquisition between Bars Legacy Holdings and Blackheart International, we ask for the presence of the Lord at the board meeting so that he may streamline operational efficiencies and, and allow us to acquire competitive advantage in the market. And they were there talking like this and bringing fucking poor old Christ into it. And I'm listening away, eating my English dick sausage and giving myself diarrhea from the fucking endless orange juice that you get at the buffets. No, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm not having sausages every morning. I'm not doing it. I'm going to, I've got like eight days in a hotel. I go for sausages, two days, a treat. And then the rest of the time, croissants. Which I call them croissants. Over in England. Do you know what they call them over in England? Croissant. 
I know it's the French pronunciation, but come on. They're croissants, you silly billy. So I'm going to do croissants, muesli, natural yogurt, a lot of fresh fruit, and coffee. And maybe just for two of the days, English Mickey sausages. William the Conqueror's dick, the right honourable Gregory Chichester the third. I don't know who the fuck he is, but I will dine on his savoury penis. Using that weird blunt English hotel cutlery that they have so you don't think of doing a terrorist attack. Not as blunt as, as airplane cutlery, but not as sharp. I'm talking about butter knives here. Not as sharp as what you have at home. Just a butter knife that's dull enough that it'll prevent you from doing a terror. And, and that's what I'm probably doing right now. Eating a bit of a continental breakfast. Having climbed out of my continental quilt. Wondering why the two of them are related. I can understand why... You have a continental breakfast. There's cheese and bits of ham and croissants. So that's continental. The fuck is continental about my quilt? What, what's so Spanish or French about my quilt? Are they saying that the hotel bed is so big that I'm effectively pulling a continent over myself? I am the bare earth and this quilt is, is the continent that I pull over myself. Is, is this a tectonic analogy? So I'm now talking to you from the past, wondering about what I'm doing now, <laughs> and that's the most exciting shit I can think of. That's fucking autism for you now. I'm hanging out with Johnny Marr on Monday night. <laughs> that's that's the bit I'm supposed to get excited about, not the predictability of the breakfasts. So I pre-recorded this week's podcast because there's simply no way I'd have time to do it this week. But as I mentioned last week, it is currently Science Week. The 12th to 19th November is Science Week in Ireland. And Science Week, it's about democratising science. It's a week where anybody, anybody of any age, gets to interact with scientists and go to loads of class events and find out about what's happening right now in science. So between the 12th and 19th of November, there's going to be loads of events all over the country where you can go and learn about science. And the best way to find out exactly what's going on, go to sfi.ie, Science Foundation Ireland's website. Take a look at the website and go to their events and find out if there's anything happening close to you. And what I'm doing this week is I'm chatting to Professor Yvonne Buckley. And she's a professor of zoology at Trinity College up in Dublin. And she's also the the co-chair of the All-Ireland Climate and Biodiversity Research Network. So I'm chatting to an expert, a scientist, a professor about biodiversity climate collapse biodiversity collapse which is an incredibly serious issue that we all need to be very informed about but you know with with this podcast when i speak to people about biodiversity or when i speak about biodiversity myself i like to lean into it in a way that's that inspires proactivity and a bit of hope to be very real about the situation to not gloss over anything but to inspire action to inspire action and to inspire hope And that's the chat I had with Professor Yvonne Buckley, who's unbelievably sound and loads of crack. And we had a fantastic chat where I got to, I got to explore my curiosity around science, zoology, biodiversity with someone who's who's an expert. So please enjoy this. Yvonne Buckley, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and agreeing to have a chat. That's great to be on here. I'm delighted. Um, So the first thing... First thing I'd like to ask, right, is I, 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 you, so you're professor of zoology in Trinity College. Yeah, that's and right. You started 
your academic training in like 2002, is that correct? Um, I guess, well, I went to, to the UK to do my undergraduate first. I mean, I grew up in North Cork, um, mm -hmm. so not too far away from you, I think. Yeah. And um, I went to Oxford to do my undergraduate. And then I stayed in the UK for about 10 years doing a PhD and a postdoc. And then I went off to Australia for 10 years to do uh, my first academic positions. And um, it was only after that I came back to Ireland again about 10 years ago. It's like zoology is the study of animals. It's the study of animals and wildlife. Yeah. And when you began this journey, and this is something I, I hear from a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists say, I'm supposed to be studying this thing. And now all I'm doing is fixing, trying to fix a problem. Like <laughs> when you started, did you know that you're going to get into something here where you're effectively fixing a problem? Did you know that in the early 2000s? I did. I was very... I guess, aware of the problems early on. And I'm a, I'm a problem solver. Like that's what I mm -hmm. love to do. That's where I find my academic challenges is, okay. um, you know, figuring out what the problem is and then trying to find a solution to it. So that's, that's always what draws me to an area. So I was a kid in the nineties and I do remember seeing my parents' car if we went out the countryside and all the insects that were on the front of the car, the windshield yep. and the lights, the lights being so full of insects that you'd have to wipe it off and it was uncomfortable. That mm -hmm. doesn't happen anymore. Like I did a gig at the weekend up in Monaghan. So that's a drive from Limerick to Monaghan. No yeah. insects anywhere. Like that's a lot of insects that aren't around anymore in such a short space of time in 30 years. Yeah, this is a really tricky one because a lot of people, you know, have found this anecdotally. What's the story there? Yeah, so... Insect declines are a real thing and we have some really good um, evidence from, you know, long term scientific monitoring that insect populations have declined. But it, the thing about insects is they are so variable and so patchy that you need that long term scientific monitoring to be able to say anything really conclusive. Mm -hmm. So um, the kind of, you know, the car windshield um, is a great story it makes it real to people and it's you know it's something we observe but it's very difficult to then say you know what what is it that's gone wrong i mean there's well we know we know in our, our landscapes that over the last 40 years populations of all kinds of things from you know vertebrates to insects have all declined because of the way that we use the land and the way that we use the sea now so much more intensive um but the scientific monitoring goes alongside those kind of observations, you know, the, the, the stuff that we see in real life um, to give, you know, the strong evidence base that we need to say exactly what's going wrong, whether it's the pesticides in our environment, whether it's the intensive land use, the cutting down of hedgerows and the tidying up of the countryside, you know. Yeah. And nature thrives on untidiness. So that's another thing, because I was a kid, so it's hard to remember. But are you suggesting there that maybe the countryside was just a little bit more mad, a little bit more wild. <laughs> I think it was, yeah. Um, Less cars on the road too. We had we had fewer cars, we had narrower roads. Um, there was fewer chemicals being put into the system because it's quite expensive to use those. And unless you're getting big mm -hmm. profits, which is what, you know, some, some of our agricultural industries now are quite profitable. So you can afford those, you know, chemical inputs that maybe mm -hmm. you couldn't afford back in the 80s and 90s. There's been, you know, just in my lifetime, in the last 40 years, you know, we've seen such huge, huge changes in how we farm the landscape and yes. uh, in our urban development. And even just like how we, how we um, you know, organize our front gardens and our back gardens and, you know, paving over front gardens for car park spaces, you know, that's mm -hmm. a new thing that wasn't around 40 years ago. Um, yeah. So I think, I think things, things we forget because of this whole kind of shifting baselines 
thing that you know as as the world changes we get used to the new normal we get used to the yeah. new normal we forget how it was you know and um it used to be more untidy but another thing too because my, my mother my mother's 80 you know so when yeah. i speak to my mother about this stuff some of the things she says to me sometimes i feel like how my mother described how she grew up is where our society needs to go by which i mean she came to a market in Limerick with me recently and in this market, farmer's market, they were selling all this locally produced organic products, mm-hmm. potatoes, carrots, whatever. And they were real expensive and they were effectively presented as a luxury item. This was mm-hmm. a fetishized luxury item to be able to buy carrots and potatoes and the farmer to say, these are from Limerick. These are. And mm. I'm going, wow, really? Because my, my carrots are from Spain. Yeah. And my ma laughed at it. And said, we didn't have organic stuff growing up. Everything was organic and everything was locally produced. This is how it was. Yeah. And she used to tell me stories about, like her granda had once seen an orange. You know what I mean? Her granda (laughs) had seen, he'd been abroad somewhere and he'd seen an orange. And he used to come home and he had a gold um, pocket watch. And he used to tell her and her in like the forties, he'd say to her and her sisters, "Oh, this is this is an orange. This gold pocket watch. This is what an orange is." And they believed him, and they'd climb up on him when he was asleep and try and eat his pocket watch. Wow. But for me, it was like there was something beautiful in the fact that here's a person who has seen an orange because you couldn't get an orange in Ireland because everything mm-hmm. was local and organic. And what you what you'd lose there is choice, but what you gain is. That's so much better for the environment than biodiversity. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, we, we can't romanticize the past either, you know, in that there were things, you know, like 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 of that course. choice, that diversity of food. I mean, the diversity of food now we can get down in our local Tesco is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of me is like, yes, that would be fantastic if everybody could eat locally grown and, you know, more more in tune, food that's produced more in tune with nature. So using kind of the nature-based solutions that we know work, um, like having more wildflowers around your fields and more hedgerows and, you know, making space for the insects that eat the pests on your food. You know, all of that is really good stuff. But what's happened in the last kind of 20, 30 years is that the price of food has has just, you know, become very, very cheap mm-hmm. um, as well, you know, because we're able to produce food and much more cheaply now with modern agricultural techniques than we could in the past. So we have this conflict, right, between trying to make sure that food is available, healthy food is available to everyone, um, and making sure that people have, you know, I'm making sure that our countryside is not, you know, that we're not horrendously polluting and destroying our countryside in the process of making that cheap food available. So there's probably a middle road somewhere, you know, where we can import some of the ideas from organic agriculture into conventional agriculture and say, look, you know, let's go a middle way here. Let's find ways of, of bringing more life back into our farms, um, you know, without going the whole hog. It's a tough one because, like, when I think of beef, something I often say to people is, like, you know, I, I can go and I can buy 500 grams of mince for, like, four euro in the shop. Mm-hmm. And I like to say to people, I think that th- that's really wrong. It's kind of really, I shouldn't, when you think of the size of that cow, when you think mm-hmm. of the amount of water that cow had to drink, when you think of the amount of uh, wheat or corn that had to be grown or grass to feed that cow, I kind of shouldn't be able to do that. It's 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 what I'm looking at is yummy, yummy. I've got four five hundred grams of beef. 
but what this is here is unsustainable and it's kind of wrong and I don't know, should I be yeah. able to do this? Well, and the farmers would probably agree with you. You know, they're not getting enough money. They're, they're not getting enough money for their beef either. You know what I mean? Like they're not being paid um, sufficiently to cover their input costs. You know, beef farming is not very economically viable in Ireland. It only that, um, I'd love really to know is. about that, Yvonne. What, why? Because I've heard farmers say that so much. Like, yeah. why is that? Why, why in Ireland, this wonderful place, like cattle, Jesus, you read our mythology and they're talking about cattle 2000 years ago. We're the land of cattle and wonderful grass and rain. Why can't beef farmers earn money from beef in Ireland? They earn most of their money through the common agricultural policy. So without those taxpayer subsidies from Europe, um, beef farming would not be economically viable in much of this country. Um, so we're, we're paying farmers wow. to actually produce beef in a lot of cases, um, you know, which is it blows my mind. And, and you know, similar for sheep farming. Th- that doesn't make sense. Um, to me. Yeah. So so it's, 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 a, it's a really strange one. But people are used to buying cheap beef down in the supermarket. So yeah. you can't you can't charge more for your beef because people will buy it or um, people will buy beef from another country, for mm-hmm. example, Brazil, which, you know, the, the carbon yeah. emissions from the beef in, in Brazil are much, much worse because they cut down tropical rainforests to grow soy to yeah. feed to their cows. You know, ours are grass fed at least. And um, our beef but, is but, fetishized around the world as well. Our beef and, and our products are yeah. fetishized because we're we're grass fed. Yeah, but we don't we don't build in the environmental costs into the costs of that food. So it's based, you know, that what you buy in the supermarket, those costs are based on the inputs that the farmer makes, maybe a bit of fertilizer, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of extra food for the cows, you know, buying the cows, the veterinary bills, you know, there's lots of lots of different input costs. But we don't factor in the um, you know, the, the, the slurry that runs into our fresh waters that pollutes our fresh water, you yeah. know, that's a cost that's borne by society in general, rather than paid for by the people eating the products. Why is that dangerous, Ivan? Why is it so bad for slurry to go into rivers? Lots of nutrients in slurry. So okay. it goes into rivers and then that encourages the, you know, some kinds of animals and plants to grow and they suck up all the oxygen out of the river and they change the environment for other kinds of animals and plants. And you end up with a really, um, polluted, low diversity uh, ecosystem. So, if, you know, Loch Ness has been in the news a lot over the last month or two with that toxic algal bloom. Yeah, what's um, going on there? Like that mm, is so freaky. Yeah, it's really worrying. But it's it's kind of like the endpoint of um, you know the monitoring um, of water quality on this island has shown that we've seen big declines in water quality, you know, north and south over the past mm-hmm. forty years. And the pollution, you know, this this state of Loch Ness now is just kind of the endpoint of of um, that pollution, um, you know. So it's 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 basically a, you know, if we needed more wake up calls, there it is. <laughs> but but we see it, we see the same thing in lots of our rivers and lakes all over the country. You know, it's it's getting towards that. It's not, we're not at that point yet, but we're we're seeing all the warning signs. So do you see? So Loch Ness has got a, a bloom of algae, which makes it fluorescent green, and basically it's a dead lake. Not not a lot can live in there because that algae is taken over. Is that correct? So yeah, it's it's a it's a funny little creature called a cyanobacteria. It 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 photosynthesizes, so that's why it has that kind of bright fluorescent green color. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's kind of a bacteria. Oh, so as that's well. chlorophyll then that we we're seeing. That's yeah, what that exactly. Green yeah. Is. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's a mad one, right? But like, could that happen to the River Shannon? Like, could Ooh, that happen that's an to interesting one? Like, because I'm looking at it going, okay, here, here's a lake that's not pleasant, but yeah. I, what if all the water turns into that? 
Yeah, so lakes are very susceptible to those kinds of toxic blooms because the water is kind of stationary and it doesn't mix as much as in a river, I believe. So there's not as much oxygen getting in there through the the movement of the water. Mm-hmm. And they also and the, the the temperature can be quite warm in a lake as well, mm-hmm. especially in the shallow parts. So I'm not a I'm not a freshwater biologist now. So um yeah, I don't know exactly what what's going on, but we tend to see those those cyanobacterial blooms in um in lakes rather than rivers. But you get other kinds of problems in rivers. You know, there's a lot of little creatures that you wouldn't know are in rivers until you mm-hmm. go kicking around the stones and putting a net out and collecting them. We, we take our students down to do this kind of river sampling mm-hmm. uh, quite often. And you see all kinds of weird and wonderful beasts like mayflies and stoneflies. Yeah. And the larvae of loads of our insects actually live as little um, freshwater invertebrates in lakes and rivers and streams. So and that's those little weird things you see floating around when you really look at it. Yeah, or they'll be under the rocks. The really cool stuff is under the rocks. <laughs> wow. So turn the rocks over and see what you find. And they're like little, little, just little kind of shrimpy things. Yes. Or, you know, they're really cute. But, but I mean, this could be another reason for our insect declines is the fact that we're now polluting the habitat of a lot of, you know, the dragonfly larvae can't survive. They're nurseries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's kind of un- it's kind of invisible. Like when you get into zoology and get into biodiversity, you find you see all this stuff that other people don't see, and I think it's a bit of a superpower. You see the world in a completely different way. We think about bees and we think about flies, and we have an awareness of wasps, and that's about as far as that's about as far as I used to take it until I started to learn what biodiversity was and started to think about yeah. everything in terms of a system, and then I started to care about everything. I mean. Just a quick one on, on Loch Ness. Like, let's just say the government or whatever, because there's the problem as well as it being up north. Let's just say that the, the aristocrat who owns it gives it over to an organization who are interested in, in fixing it. D- mm. Is it the type of thing you can go, oh, I can see how someone could try and fix that. Or is it just done? And I it's a big it can, question, yeah, I know. Okay. But like, yeah, no, I, th- I think that. It's not beyond the point of no return, I don't think. I think that it could be fixed. I think it would require a big all-of-landscape approach, and it would okay. require a social and ecological solution. You so know, it's not these just things, about a lake. Yeah, it's not just about a lake. It's about how we use the land, how we treat our own sewage waste, how we treat, you know, um, runoff from farms, how we farm the land surrounding it. I mean, Loch Ness is a huge body of water, and it's fed by, you know, a number of different rivers Mm -hmm. Um, up in the north so you'd have to really look at the whole of the landscape that's feeding into Loch Ness and think about how we can change what we do on the land to prevent it you know to prevent those nutrients from getting in Um, and you know there there are restoration science is is coming on in leaps and bounds and we have you know we're figuring out um, lots of different ways of restoring ecosystems we need to do more of that I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the first line of defense is don't let it get into that state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if it is, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot of things that we can do to improve the situation. At every point of this conversation, right? Like everything comes up against capitalism. Everything comes up against like. The lake is that because someone was making money somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. mean, I know that the owner for years was selling the sand. There was sand present in the lake. So that was being sold and extracted for building. Then you have farmers who are just doing their thing and farming and Mm -hmm. their fertilizer goes into the lake. But at all points there, you have people just earning a living. That's capitalism. And 
Yeah. The most uncom- uncomfortable thing around the world about biodiversity collapse, co- climate collapse, is is scientists like yourselves have to go to the powers that be and go. The problem here is 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 the literal system of how the world is working right now. The problem mm-hmm. is capitalism. Like that's a tough conversation. How are you finding that? <laughs> that is a tough conversation. Um, so I guess I would approach it from. Uh, the point of view is we need a balancing force, right? We need we mm-hmm. need something to kind of counteract the simple optimization that pure capitalism, you know, leads to. It's the optimize you know, the cost efficiency of everything mm-hmm. without the real cost being built in. So we either need to build in those real costs, you know, the the cost to us, to our health, to um, you know, to our clean water, our ability to keep ourselves well and happy in our you know functioning environments. There's there's cost to every single one of us that just aren't built in to the um, to the cost that we pay for goods and that farmers earn and you know everything else like that. Um, so that's one side of it, and the other side of it, you know, building in those real costs would be a great step. And the other side of it is just regulation. But that then you makes know? stuff so expensive that people can't afford it. Well, yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, but 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 then we cho- then we choose what to subsidize, don't we? You know, as yeah. a as a country, we subsidize fossil fuel use currently to a large degree. We're subsidizing, you know, the um, certain kinds of farming and things like that. Um, that you know, maybe those subsidies would be better used um, planting trees along, you know, rivers to stop the runoff from going into the rivers, yeah. or putting in place sediment traps, or you know, there's lots of things we could be subsidizing. That we're not, and instead we're subsidizing some of the wrong things. We're subsidizing the pollution and not the solution. Yes, absolutely. Um, sometimes again, what I like to say to myself, and it's after I speak to my mother, was, was it really that bad in the fifties? Like, I mean, what I mean there is 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 describing a world where things are just a little bit more scarce. Like, mm-hmm. to say for me to say to myself, no, you can't have a banana. Why can't you have a banana? Because they're over there in Costa Rica and it's really expensive to get it to Ireland. So a banana, like, you know, they used to rent out pineapples. Mm. Did you ever hear of that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pineapples are like the height of luxury, yeah. weren't they? You just used to show them off at your dinner table. You didn't People eat them. would, would rent them. <laughs> and then the poorer you are, you got the third rent of the pineapple. Oh, they were really manky by then. It's like even when you, if you were to walk around Dublin and you look at some of the railings from the Georgian era, you look at the mm-hmm. tops of those railings. If you look closely, you'll see in some of the designs, you'll see pineapples because yeah, pineapples absolutely. were so luxurious. It's like, no, you yeah. can't have a pineapple. Certainly not because you can't really grow them here. Yeah. And and there's, it's scarcity, you know, is what I'm talking about there. Like my, yeah. my ma as well tells me about, um, you know, we were talking about beef and the idea to my mother in the 50s, we'll say, or the 40s, you're going to have spaghetti bolognese every day of the week if you want. That was mad. Like, no, you're not. You're going to have beef once a month if you're lucky. Yeah. And she yeah. spoke about, like in Limerick, and I actually quite like the sound of this. Like Limerick's known as Pigtown. Is and it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the, because we, we had a pork industry for years. But what people in Limerick used to do, and I'm talking about people who lived in the, the inner city, people would have a pig out their back garden right? And this pig would eat all the household waste Mm -hmm. and the pig would eat the waste and then the pig's dung they're using for fertilizer for stuff that they're growing and then they take that pig when it's fattened on the household waste and they bring it into town and the pig is slaughtered and butchered and the person leaves 
with a wheelbarrow full of bacon and blood and sausages. And that's mm-hmm. their meat for the year. Mm-hmm. And people lived like that. But isn't that, doesn't that sound so sustainable? I, I mean, I know you're still killing an animal there, but. Yeah, th- that's, so, so it's, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's, but it's not the way we live now, right? No. And that we live in such dense urban um, you know, cities. And that's actually, it's actually quite sustainable to have people living very, very densely. If we wanted everyone to have their own pig, we'd be using this land much more intensively. So if you think back yeah. even just to the famine, um, you know, everybody had their acre of potatoes. Mm-hmm. There was 8 million people living in the country. It was very densely populated. But to feed that population, everyone needed to be growing their potatoes. So the countryside was actually used very, very intensively back then, you know. Yeah. Um, and you see, you know, old potato furrows, in places that are now national parks, like in the Burren National Park, for example, wow. one of the sites I work in, there's old potato furrows, you know, so they would have farmed, um, you know, that thin layer of soil for potatoes on top of the limestone pavement, like every inch of the country was probably But they might, might have made a balance of the land as well, though, did they? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't all, it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns back then either, you know, um, the Burren is another great example. That used to be forest, uh, you know, back before humans um, you know, came to Ireland, it would have been, you know, there would have been some areas of open grassland on the very thin soils and the very rocky areas, but there would have been a lot mm-hmm. more uh, hazel woodland and oak woodland and things like that. And then that was cleared and then a lot of the soil eroded. So that's what produced that landscape of the burren. It wouldn't have looked like that, you know, nine, eight thousand years ago. No. Um, it would have had a lot more soil on it. It would have had more trees on we it. We were rainforest. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, there was I mean, temperate, temperate to rainforest. Think, yeah. I think yeah. that Ireland was once a rainforest and that's kind yeah. of what we're supposed to be. But exactly we're not. Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. mad. Let's take a little break now for an ocarina pause. I don't have an ocarina today, but I'm in my studio. So I have a variety of instruments and I think let's do something strange. I've got an instrument here called a flexitone. It's a Latin percussion instrument that makes a very odd noise. So I'm going to play the flexitone. And then you're going to hear an advert for something. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Wonderful instrument there, the flexitone. You would have heard an advert for something. That instrument's used quite a lot in, in 90s West Coast rap music, in G-Funk in particular. I need to know how that started or how it happened. It's a niche instrument, but if you know that sound, you know it from like 
Dr. Dre or Tupac or it's in the it's in the opening credit music for Grand Theft Auto San Andreas a choir little instrument so support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast if this podcast is bringing you joy mirth merriment distraction whatever it is that has you come and listening to this podcast please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing because this is my full time job it's how I earn a living it's how I rent out my office it's how I pay all my bills this is my job it's my career and only because of the support of my patrons am I able to do it so if you can support via Patreon please do I'm talking about the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month that's it if you listen to my podcast would you like buy me a coffee in real life or buy me a pint because you like listening to it well you can via the Patreon but if that's too expensive for you if you're not at work at the moment whatever don't worry about it you can listen for free you can listen for free because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free so everybody gets a podcast and I earn a living and it's a, a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness my book Topographia Hibernica it's available now please buy a copy if that's what you're into if you like short stories so I'm recording this on the past but you're listening to this on the 15th which means that tomorrow night 16th I'm in Coventry and there are a few tickets left for Coventry it's almost sold out and then Edinburgh sold out Friday Saturday in Belfast Belfast in the waterfront is actually sold out but they had held back a bunch of tickets in case I needed them from, for guest list and I don't so there's probably like possibly 10 tickets left for Belfast if you want them and then this Sunday the 19th Dublin my homecoming gig I'll have a belly full of English sausages of a wonderful guest there's very few tickets left for that but Vicar Street on Sunday the 19th come along to that because that's going to be loads of crack and I, I just love my Vicar Street gigs Sunday night I always do my Vicar Street gigs on like a Sunday or a Tuesday or a Monday on the nights that other acts like don't want Vicar Street because it's hard to sell on a Sunday, Monday or Tuesday I take those nights because you can come to my gig you don't have to drink it's a lovely relaxed night it's closer to theatre or the cinema and you can be home in bed up for work the next day with a clear head on you and then once Vicar Street is done I'm going to chill it a bit for the gigs. I'm going to try and relax for December. I've spent two years writing a book. I just want to take a break for December. And all I want to do is write this podcast each week. Because I love doing this podcast. But just to have a bit of space. Well, that's the only thing I'm doing. And then my next gigs after that are in February. Where I'm going to be two nights in Berlin. One of them is sold out. And then Oslo. In February, I can't wait to gig in Oslo. I can't wait to go to fucking Oslo. I've never been there. I'm going to go to Viking museums. I'm going to do some Viking shit. I'm going to experience extreme cold that I've never known before in February up in Oslo. But I'm also doing a live podcast there on the 6th of February. So if you're in Oslo, come along. Okay, back to my chat with the wonderful Professor Ivan Buckley for Science Week. Check out SFI.ie to see some Science Week events. Um, I I have a theory. I'm going to say this, you know, this is a crazy theory, but I just want you to hear it and you can take off your academics hat when you're listening to it. Okay. Um, So 
I reckon that mythology, right, mythological beliefs and folklore exist in the human animal to keep us in line with systems of biodiversity, right? Because we're animals, humans are animals, and we're Mm -hmm. animals with language. And I just, I find that with so much mythology, like up until the 1600s in Ireland, it was illegal to kill a white butterfly because people truly believed that white butterflies contained the souls of dead children. Wow. And also, people didn't fuck with bees because if you look at Irish mythology and bees, bees belong to the goddess Bridget and Bridget lived in the other world and her bees in the other world, which was like the Irish pagan heaven, but it's not a heaven, it's a parallel universe. Mm-hmm. Bridget was over there and people believed that she had an orchard and she tended bees in this orchard. And then the bees would travel through mist in the morning into our dimension. And that's how they would fertilize flowers. But you didn't Mm. fuck with bees because bees belong to Bridget. And then you go all around the world. Like, you know, of course, the story about um, when they reintroduced the wolf in Yellowstone National Park and how it improved Mm -hmm. biodiversity. So I looked Mm -hmm. at that story, but I also then looked at the mythology of the uh, Crow Nation Mm-hmm. Native Americans who are indigenous to, to Yellowstone. If you look at their mythology, which is a couple of thousand years old, their like creator God is, is a wolf or a coyote. Mm-hmm. So if you look at their mythology going years back, the, the most important animal to them is the wolf. And then mm-hmm. you find that science proves that. And it's just a crazy theory that I have that I, I, I think, I think mythology is there in the human animal to stop us mm-hmm. doing what we've done. Because if you look at what you look at colonialism and the whole thing with colonialism is you eradicate the language and beliefs of a culture so that you can extract wealth from the land. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think it's crazy at all. I just wanted to get your take on it. because like, Yeah, no. So, so okay, I'm going to take my, my, my academic hat off, as you suggested, yeah. and I'm going to tell you my opinion. I, I think that, that, you know, a lot of those um, myths um, and even, you know, the basis of many practices and religions um, are based on a sustainable way of living. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, back in the day, all you had was what you could get from your bit of land yeah. for you and your family. So, you you know, you you had to manage things um, so that you had food next year, next mm-hmm. month. You couldn't write things down, too. You couldn't write anything down, so you have to have oral culture and storytelling. You couldn't write, exactly, yeah, or exactly, stories. And the stories had to be memorable. So, you know, you, you'd have kind of encode these rules of living into your stories and the stories, the best stories, the ones that survived were the yeah. ones that were much more transmissible, you know, that were more fun to hear, easier mm-hmm. to remember, easier to recount. So you get these kind of encoded rules of living in in the myths and legends and it's just fascinating to try and kind of then exhume what yeah. those rules of living would have been from those myths and legends and, and then from our religious practices yeah exactly and you know more and more now putting my academic hat back on again more and more now ecologists are recognizing the value of traditional ecological knowledge and saying look you know there's a lot of really useful information that's been encoded in traditional ecological practices and um, stories and myths and legends and, and we're increasingly using those um, when we're looking for the solutions that we need for the climate crisis for example for the biodiversity crisis mm-hmm. um, you know there's there's nuggets of information in there that are just invaluable and there's ways of managing ecosystems that traditional peoples have been doing for centuries or millennia 
that we can learn from and say, okay, this is what we need, you know, to manage fisheries sustainably, for example, or, you know, to, to um, manage, you know, forests for products that we can get out of them, um, you know, maintain ourselves on forest products while still, you know, maintaining the forest there as a closed canopy system, for example, you know, so um, I think there's a lot in what you're saying. And what I'm poking around with there as well, Yvonne, is, is like what, what you've described there about scientists now listening to indigenous knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're in Trinity College, like you're, you're a scientist, you're a professor, but if you, the scientific method I yep. see it as a very enlightenment thing. It's something that we get from the enlightenment. But then you look at when that came about, it was also at the same time that uh, colonization was happening. And yeah, like in psychology at the moment, the, the serious psychologists are having to look at the use of magic mushrooms. You know, that there's mm-hmm. I, I spoke to a dude. He was a professor of psychology in Australia, and his work is basically looking at psychedelics, you know, looking at mm-hmm. psychedelics yep. to improve people's mental health. And the issue that the biggest issue is you're speaking about holistic kind of indigenous knowledge and then trying to bring this in line with the modern scientific method. And is there something similar going on in your area with what we were speaking about there going, I'm a scientist, but also there might be some value here in mythology or folklore. Absolutely. You know, how, how do you get those two things to work beside each other because without someone thinking, Oh, should that's just those silly old stories. I just want pure evidence. Yeah, yeah, it's that's interesting. I, I work a lot on plants um, for a zoologist. <laughs> yeah, but I work on plants as well, and uh, you know, even just the names of plants give you clues as to their ecology and what they were wow. used for and their chemical composition. Even no way. So Can yeah, you so, an so example. Well, my favorite plant, the one I do most, I have a, a global project on uh, ribwort plantain, which is a really common plant around the world, and we're trying to figure out you know, um, what kinds of environmental conditions cause it to, to grow? You know, why mm-hmm. does it occur from the subarctic to the subtropics? Why are you so fascinated with it? Like this, this one plant? Because it can grow everywhere from, from Finland oh, wow, all the okay. way through to um, like subtropical Australia. And it's the same plant? Same plant. Yeah, we've done wow. the genetics. Same species everywhere. Um, but in Ireland, it's called slonlus, which means health plant. So oh my it's, God. it's, 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 you know, it's it's common name in Irish indicates what it was used for, and it's it's brilliant for nettle stings. So you could rub it on your nettle stings, and it's the original mm-hmm. dock. Actually, you know, people oh. say, "Oh, you should rub docks on nettle stings." Yeah, that's rubbish. So <laughs> the reason why they say rub docks on nettle stings is because docks and nettles often grow together. Yeah, yeah. So they just go, "Oh, the docks are convenient. We'll rub that on." But the docks have got nothing chemically that helps. Um, with nettle stings, but this this plant, ribwort plantain, does. So would I know it if I saw it? Um, it's kind of one of those invisible plants. It's everywhere, okay. and you wouldn't recognize it. You know, so it's got long, mm. narrow leaves, and it's got kind of these funny flowers, which don't really look like flowers. They're kind of like black heads with a little ring of a little tutu, like a ballerina's tutu of stamens around it. So it's it's, it's quite. Once you have it pointed out to you, you'll see it everywhere. Um, but yeah, those and you know, so, so it has all these uses. And in Eastern Europe, it's used as a cough medicine and a cough mm-hmm. syrup. Now, coming around to the the ecology end of this, it the reason why it's got all of these medicinal uses is because of the chemicals in the plant that are used to deter herbivores, so caterpillars and the larvae of weevils and things like that that eat the plant. The plant is defending itself using these chemicals. Okay. Um, so so it gives you a clue as to you know what what's the chemical composition of this plant you know and then we secondarily come across 
you know, through trial and error over hundreds or thousands of years, people figured out what uses they could put this plant to. They could drink it as a tea to cure their coughs. They can rub mm-hmm. it on, you know, minor injuries and things like that. And it's the chemicals that the plant has been using to fight fight against uh, things that eat it that we are then making use of. So I find that fascinating. And just a little question about the research around this plant, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, so you're the, you have this plant and it's the same one and it grows everywhere. Yep. What, like, the first thing that came to my head there when when you mentioned that as I was thinking there's certain crops that are dying and like I saw recently they only they just figured out about a month ago how to grow baked beans in England Hmm. yeah it's it's a type of haricot bean it's a haricot bean and it used to come from France and now they're like oh brilliant we can grow it in England now and I was like isn't that fantastic think of all the transport that doesn't have to happen yeah are you thinking of if this plant can survive everywhere in the world, what does that have that makes it unique? And if some other yeah. plant is going extinct because of climate change, we can, I don't know, engineer the seed to have some of this stuff? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly one of the uses that the research can be put to. And, you know, we found that so humans have actually transported it to Australia and to America and mm-hmm. to Africa. It wouldn't have naturally occurred there. And um, in North America, it's called white man's footsteps because it grows <sighs> where where, you know, oh, where the first Europeans would have gone. Oh, and, and Jesus, isn't that amazing? They took it with them, you know. It's basically, the seeds would be mixed up in hay for the horses, for example. Wow. So really fascinating social kind of history to this plant as well. But oh, um, that's where, beautiful, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it is beautiful. Scary also, and beautiful, yeah. It's terrifying <laughs> because I imagine the indigenous American people, Yeah. they're not a fan of white men's footsteps at all because that means death and eradication. So for them, it was quite yeah, frightening. Exactly. That's a yeah, warning. And th- and, and fascinating that they would have, you know, seen this plant and, you know, seen their environment change, you know, even down to individual plants that it never occurred before white men, Europeans came mm-hmm. to North America. And now suddenly their environment has changed. And, you know, that's noted and that goes into the, the name of the plant that they find. You know, it's just fascinating. So I was thinking of something a little bit off topic. Go on, now, I was going to say, I, no, I was going to go on, off you. the tangent myself there for a second and then and then circle back again. <laughs> you go on, go on your tangent, go on, go on your tangent. Well, interestingly, now that plant is now in, in North America and a really rare native endangered butterfly species in North America, the okay. caterpillars eat that plant. Wow. So it's now become kind of integrated into the ecology of the system in North America in an interesting way. In a non-destructive way. Yeah, it's not a hugely destructive plant species. It's one of those kind of non-native plant species. It just kind of hangs around, not doing very much harm. Um, but I've heard and, that and, about and, hedgehogs yeah. in Ireland. I've heard hedgehogs yeah. here. Kind of, they were brought over by the Normans and then they kind of chilled out and said, we can work with this. We're okay. I yeah. mean, would you agree with that? Or Hedgehogs don't seem to do a hell of a lot of harm. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be um, trying to get rid of the hedgehogs. No, I think they can stay. it's Um, but it's weird isn't it that we're having this conversation about what are the good animals and the good plants and what are the bad animals and the bad plants what is trying to see what 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 ends up working with an ecosystem and what ends up destroying it because you don't hear about the ones that work yeah you hear about the ones that are invasive like japanese knotweed and stuff exactly that that are destroying things Um, yeah yeah. i was going to go on because i just like uh this is a mad tangent but have you ever heard of um Oh God, I think it's called long distance nuclear warnings. No. What what it is, is it's fascinating because when you spoke there about the, this plant being called white men's footsteps. So organizations that are burying nuclear waste, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I'm talking, so they have to bury this nuclear waste and they bury it far, far, far underground. But this stuff never is never, ever safe. So the mm-hmm. people who are burying it have to figure out if society collapses, how do you warn people in like 10,000 years? Oh, yes. Yeah. And did you hear about the glow cats? No, I didn't. So one serious solution to this, and I love it because it's insane, is someone suggested the best way in 10,000 years to warn people about nuclear waste if someone was to come across it. Because if if someone came across it, like a a civilization that's like ours, it'd be like finding the pyramids. You're just going to go, your curiosity is going to take you down there. So -hmm. they have these warnings and the warnings are beautiful because they sound like... uh, foundational literature it's like nothing good is beyond this point beyond this <laughs> point is death and destruction only i'm trying to figure out how you can say this to someone in ten thousand years but yeah. one solution that was presented was you genetically engineer cats right they reckon mm-hmm. cats will survive no matter what happens right so you yeah. genetically engineer cats so that they glow in the dark when they're near nuclear waste. And then oh, wow. you create mythology and religion and songs that yeah, might yeah. survive in 10,000 years' time. So whatever happens in 10,000 years, people will know glowing cats are bad and stay the fuck yeah. away, but we're not really yeah. sure why. <laughs> that is gloriously mad. I love Isn't it. Isn't it? <laughs> so just... you reckon my, my Plantago could be, could be one of those survivors. Cockroaches, Plantago, yeah. cats. Yeah, we should we should uh, make them all glow in the dark and um, create a whole religious religious um, thing around them. Yeah, but that's what they're saying. Because brilliant. Like, I mean, Jesus, we still have Greek myths. We still have yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah. We still speak about uh, like Irish mythology and Bridget. That could be four or five thousand years old. I yeah. spoke to a dude, uh, Mancon Magan, who's a folklorist. Yeah, and he was with uh, Indigenous Aboriginal people, and they have stories that. Or could be 25,000 years old. They have mythology that's so old, it reflects literal changes in the earth. Oh, that's incredible. Which yeah. is astounding, you know, because that's the power of, of oral mythology. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one more weird, weird thing to your, on, to your, to your um, cultural transmission. Uh, there's a species of bird in Australia called Albert's lyrebird mm-hmm. that's a great mimic. So in, in its natural environment, it would be mimicking other birds. So it creates this beautiful song, you know, to try and attract a female and warn off other males that's composed of the songs of loads of other bird species. Yeah. Um, and they're culturally, these songs are not just what the bird hears in its own lifetime. It's culturally transmitted from one generation to another. So you might, you know, as a lyre bird, you might learn from your father who yeah. learned from his grandfather, who learned from his great grandfather, you know, so you get yeah. these cultural transmission. And so you can get sounds preserved from way back in the past no from Aboriginal way. people with their clapping sticks wow. that are preserved by the lyre birds because they'll, they'll mimic human noises as well. So they mimic the clap stick. Yeah. Um, songs of Aboriginal people. And more recently, lyrebirds have been incorporating the sounds of um, chainsaws into, Christ. into their songs as, you know, it's, it's just, it's incredible. Well, I find it very affecting, very sad that now they've moved on to mimicking chainsaws because that's one of the dominant noises that they hear in their environment. But they also but, preserve but the this other, long history. The other thing as well, Yvonne, is, is like, that's unbelievably sad. But the thing mm. is too, like when we spoke about we'll say mythology, the best stories survive. Yeah, That right there is such a good story that every single person is going to hear it. E- every single person yep. who hears, there is a bird in Australia who sounds like chainsaws because it represents the destruction of their environment. 
every single person who hears that is going to remember it. And ev- everyone who hears that then, they've connected with a part of themselves that makes them care about this stuff a little bit more. I hope so. That it's would be so a really sad. nice outcome. Yeah. That's very sad, you know, and that's the power of yeah. storytelling there. You know, that's very yeah. sad. Um, just an, an, an aside, because I've never spoken to a zoologist before, and I just want to know if, if you know anything about this. Do you, do you know migratory birds, um, like the ones that end up down in Africa and they come to Ireland? Swallows, I think. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard that there's certain migratory birds and they literally have quantum computers in their heads. Like the way that they navigate yeah. the world is they use a quantum split experiment. Do you know anything about that? Is, is I, there truth in that or is it a mad yeah, thing? No, I had, a, I had a chat to a quantum scientist um, a few months ago, actually, about exactly this topic because I was fascinated. Yeah. And they're using they're using this ability of, um, you know, this this quantum ability of some uh, some birds to design quantum sensors um, and yes. for other purposes as well. So this is kind of like bio inspired design. So there is so much uh, and don't ask me how it works. I have yeah. no idea how it works, except that it is it is a real thing and quantum scientists are using it. So it must be true. Um, but it's it's it just leads you know there's just so much in the natural world that we don't yet understand yet and this is you know another one of the the fascinating things that you get as a as a zoologist or a wildlife biologist or an ecologist or anyone who studies the natural world there's so much that we don't know still about animals and plants and fungi and bacteria and it's you know a lot of it's invisible you don't see it mm-hmm. and but once you get into it it's just it's just full of weird and wonderful surprises and lots of them have you know really useful um, outcomes as well for people yeah you know? so yeah it's fascinating um, another thing and i know I, I, all my questions have been about plants and you're a zoologist but it's oh no a, I, I do plants too it's fine <laughs> i need to know about um the mushroom internet because again this is another oh, yes. one of these things like how much of it is bullshit and how much of it is true because it sounds astounding <laughs> the idea that you've got these fungus underneath the earth and it allows allows plants to communicate with each other and share resources yeah like as a, as an expert, what's the crack with that? How much is 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 real? Yeah, so the jury's out actually scientifically on how much of it is rubbish and how much of it is is true. Um, so it it was such a brilliant idea, you know, this idea of the wood wide web, this mm-hmm. kind of network of fungi, you know, that lives under the soil and connects trees. And instead of like having a forest with fungi attached, you have fungi that are farming mm-hmm. a forest, you know, it kind of wow. flips the oh idea of how the world works on its head, you know, and that we love that kind of thing, you know, that's just fascinating. Yeah. There is lots of evidence that fungi move nutrients around between trees, but whether they're actually farming the forest, you know, and whether it's the fungi driving the system or whether um, it's the trees, you know, kind of associate, it's probably a bit of both, you know, it's probably not as radical as the wood wide web, you know, some of the the rhetoric around that, but there's, there's elements of that definitely working in, in forests and grasslands and everywhere else. And fungi can transmit messages electrically mm-hmm. across their entire bodies, you know, and they can, they're, they're, they're you know, they, this, the filaments of the fungus can go for kilometers. So this idea that a fungus could be communicating from one end of its body to another over, over kilometers and potentially even communicating with plants that are that far apart as well, you know, that's fascinating. Like I heard that like, if a tree is sick, or if a tree mm-hmm. is being attacked by a disease, that tree can use the fungal network to warn other trees. Uh, yes. So I've been lecturing on this this week, actually. <laughs> there is there is some evidence that um, uh, when plants are attacked, 
by uh, a herbivore, something that's eating them. They can uh, transmit messages, you know, warning other plants of this attack. And they can transmit these messages in a bunch mm -hmm. of different ways. One is through connected fungi, for example. Another way is they release chemicals that go into the atmosphere that could be sensed by other trees. So they actually have these chemical communication mechanisms, like a scent. You know, you can think about it like a scent. Mm -hmm. And when other trees detect this, they mount their own defenses so they can, okay. you know, upregulate their chemical defenses in response to detecting the fact that, you know, their neighbor is being eaten, even if that neighbor is a different species. So plants are, you know, communicating with each other above ground, below ground. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing stuff. They might not look like they're doing stuff, but they're mm -hmm. almost as fascinating as animals, I reckon. But that's ancient knowledge, but only recently is science going, oh, this is actually true. Okay. And that, yeah. like, I see that as right there is is an example of how indigenous knowledge and now science are coming together quite comfortably the mushroom internet well the the, the this 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 concept that everything is connected you know is is that's ecology you know that that's that's we we'll fully acknowledge that that's the basis of our um scientific discipline is that you know animals plants soil the atmosphere they're all mm -hmm. connected so ecology and that concept of everything being connected are are perfectly compatible i guess where we we differ from the the kind of traditional ecological knowledge is that we start we start to get very specific about what is connected to what mm -hmm. and how and why and how much and how much can you perturb it before it breaks and you know how many species can you lose before you lose a particular ecosystem service yeah. so we get very very specific about those connections um, but the broad general concepts are are very compatible. I see what you're saying. And even recently, uh, Mankon Megan, who I mentioned earlier, he, mm. he works with an organization called Home Tree. So yes. they they uh, plant forests. And what Mankon said that part of his job when he does this is he's like, I just can't I can't just plant a forest. I, just, I can't just get oak seeds and decide mm -hmm. I'm doing an oak forest. What he does is he's walks the landscape for hours hoping mm -hmm. to find an old oak tree not just for that tree but for the mycelium in the soil yeah that it's not just about planting a tree it's about yeah hold on a second this soil here and the fungus here this could be quite old and that's very important if i want this entire forest to grow yeah absolutely and and science had backed that up that that it's you know the 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 soil that um that the things that go into the soil in an old forest are quite different to the soil, you know, where you're trying to, if you're trying to restore a forest, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, getting hold of soil um, from ancient woodland, the close by would be fantastic. Or, you know, being able to grow out, grow out or, you know, collect and grow some of those really critical fungi and introduce them with the seed so that you're creating a little kind of fungal nest for the seed to, to grow up with, you know, you're creating, you're, you're putting that, connection um you know in place right at the start could really help with the restoration of that forest and another thing and this is something Kali Ennis said to me like what I love about biodiversity and nature and what gives me a great feeling of hope is this sense of build it and they will come yeah like I had a six foot patch up my back garden and I planted native, like proper native Irish wildflower about three years ago. Mm -hmm. And within two years, I was seeing insects I'd never seen in my life. Grasshoppers, yeah. big grasshoppers. 
And it felt amazing because it gave me hope. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I didn't ask any grasshoppers in. I'd never seen a grasshopper before. I just grew the right plants. Yeah. And the plants, like, how, how did that happen? How, how did I plant native Irish wildflower and then two years later, I'm seeing insects that I've never seen before? How did they find out? Like, I'm in a city. <laughs> how did they know? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean... So insects get dispersed around the place through their own power of flight, but they can also kind mm. of get moved around by the wind, you know, so so this insects keep being moved around everywhere kind of randomly as well as under their own steam. And I guess it's a case of, you know, if you throw enough things at, um, at, at a patch, you know, something will stick mm. if the conditions are right. So there was probably baby grasshoppers coming into your garden, you know, um, every single year but they were just they were just never sticking you know they were dying yeah. or they were deciding to go somewhere else or you know um they just didn't stick so now that you have the right conditions for them um if anything does happen to come along um it can it can actually uh thrive there now and another another great example of this is that uh, the lawns at trinity at the front of college um yes so there's uh, uh, the, the front there where where um, plants have been planted as a wildflower, an ornamental wildflower meadow. But just inside yeah, the gates, that's that's really pretty and it's grand. But just inside the gates, we have these two old grass quadrangles, you know, uh, the traditional kind of, you know, college lawns. Mm -hmm. um, and both of them have a birch tree on and they were not mown this summer. So if you come into, into Trinity and you have a look, there's all this kind of scraggy looking long grass just inside the entrance. Um, and it's been absolutely fascinating to see what's come up just when you stop mowing, just for the summer. Uh, we've had um, orchid species coming up and orchids wow. take, they could take, you know, years to decades to uh, to grow and flower. So I find it fascinating. Are orchids that, the parasitic ones, are they? Well, these ones are not parasitic. These ones make their okay. own make their own food. But they um, the, the, the fascinating thing for me is that they've just been sitting there getting mown every year for, you know, tens okay. hundreds of years getting mown getting mown getting mown never had the chance to flower and then this is their year you know <laughs> suddenly there's no mowing for the first time in you know recorded history of trinity and um, up they pop they've got their chance and they flowered and are setting seed and you know there'll be more orchids next year so i it's it's just fascinating what can come up when you when you actually just step back a bit manage it for biodiversity and and see what happens and then I, I like just as a wider ecosystem question, right? So you, you, you're seeing this this wildflower meadow in Trinity and you're looking at the insects. Is anything happening with larger animals? Are you seeing any different birds or, or anything now on Trinity now that the wildflower meadow has been allowed to do its thing? Ah, so then we come to the question of scale. And this is something that concerns yeah. ecologists a lot. We're always talking about scale. So, um, you know, at what size of intervention will make a difference to different kinds of animals? Yes. Like a small wildflower meadow like that, you know, will have positive effects on bees and butterflies and grasshoppers and small things. But if you actually want to make a difference to, you know, um, resources for, for large birds, which fly around and use lots of different areas, you need to do something at the scale of like the whole city or a whole landscape. And that's where okay. things start to get really interesting because, you know, what if we had, you know, networks of these, you know, long yeah. grass, um, meadowy places, um, you know, in every single suburb in the, in the, um, um, in the city, you know, then you're starting to get things at a scale at which animals like birds and mammals can actually use them. And I think the last few years with the All Island, the All Ireland Pollinator Plan, we're starting to get that element of scale now Go because away. every tidy, really? every tidy towns organization in the country is signed up to the All Ireland Pollinator Plan. 
all the local authorities, you know, are now leaving areas uncut for several weeks to months during yeah. the summer. So we're starting to see, and I've never seen so many cowslips, so many orchids on just on the sides of the roads as I have in the last few years. Completely unscientific, anecdotal um, observation. But yeah. But see, some people hate it. Some people hate yeah. that. And some people think, oh, it's ugly. Yeah. That roundabout is awful. Yeah. That's ugly. Because we're so conditioned by the long yeah. mentality, which again, that's for me, that's pure colonialism. You look at the great lawns of the 1700s and Capability Brown and all these people designing lawns. I mean, I, I take that back to the Enlightenment. It's when Western man said, we've got science now, we're brilliant. Mm-hmm. Let's control nature. Yeah. And the lawn yeah. for me is an, is, is, is an arrogant mm-hmm. human thing to show that you can control and design nature. So when we see wonderful wildflower meadows or a wild roundabout, it's hard for my brain to go, that's not messy. That's beautiful. That's how yeah, things are supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know we're, I mean? we're conditioned. Yeah. And then, and you know, but there's all kinds of complications as well. Because, you know, do you go for the, you know, you said you had a lovely native wildflower meadow with native species yeah. in, you know, that's that's really good. And, and you know, local seed. Um, or you just stop mowing and see what comes up in your patch. You know, you don't have to dig it all up and replant it necessarily. And sometimes you do, but, you know, a lot of the times you can just stop mowing for a bit. You don't have to completely stop mowing. You can mow around the edges to make it look tidy. You can, you know, mow it down in the winter and remove the cuttings. And that actually, re- you know, reduces the nutrients mm-hmm. and encourages a more diverse um, suite of species. But I, I can't, but the, we also need to adjust our aesthetic expectations here. You know, it's yes. not, it's not all you know, meadows from, you know, French impressionist paintings of poppies mm-hmm. and, you know, cornflowers and that kind of romantic idea of a wildflower meadow is probably not the best. Well, I know it's definitely not the best thing for biodiversity. Uh, our yeah. best biodiversity meadows are, you know, kind of grassy looking, you know, more mm-hmm. green than red poppy, you know, subtle yeah. colors, um, you know, quite subtle um, beauty. And we need to understand what that you know what the subtleties of that beauty are and adjust our aesthetic expectations away from the fireworks of you know poppies Mm -hmm. and cornflowers and and more into the the gentle greens and purples and yellows and the dandelions and the daisies and you know all these things that are part of our childhoods and part of you know should be part of our identity but have kind of been knocked out of us what what i find fascinating about that is is Sometimes I get the sense of like, I, I, I don't think we know what Ireland's supposed to look like. No, we don't. You know, un, unless you uh, like, I know Owen Dalton down there in yeah. the Bear Peninsula, he's really having a crack at doing a proper yeah. Yeah. indigenous native Irish uh, rainforest. Yeah. I'm not even sure I know what that looks like. Yeah. You know, because I've been to forests, but most of the forests I've been to, I have seen some old wood forests, but like only up until five years ago I thought that a pine forest was a forest and it's yeah. like it's not a forest that's industrial agriculture right there that's not a forest mm-hmm. you know um what I would whenever I speak about this stuff I always like to try and leave people with a sense of hope you know yeah. me doing my little six foot wildflower garden you know yeah which is a tiny thing in your opinion it, 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 does that really contribute to change uh yes I think it does. And I can give you a few a few reasons why I think that. I mean, I think, first of all, 
we so I, you know I, I work in this field I see the kind of you know the, the negative side of it all the time and you know people often ask me oh, how do you how do you cope you know <laughs> how do mm-hmm. what what do you do to to keep hope and hope going and it's like it's things like that it's you know having your own patch seeing it develop being connected to nature growing your own food and you know seeing biodiversity there's no there's no substitute for being out there and experiencing it yourself good for your brain it's good for your mind your mental health it's really good for your physical health as well for me it gave me a feeling of, of agency and control over the uncertainty of climate anxiety absolutely you're doing something exactly yeah. the best an- antidote to climate anxiety or biodiversity anxiety is doing something about it and you know you mentioned home tree there yeah you know loads of admiration for them they're doing a great job and um, birdwatch ireland you know we got loads of fantastic ngos you know so if you have your own patch and you're doing something on your own patch, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, uh, going into your tidy towns group and doing something at a larger scale there and having a little bit of influence there? What about joining one of our brilliant NGOs or, you know, working for um, one of these amazing organizations mm-hmm. that are volunteering for one of these amazing organizations that's doing such great work um, or influencing your employer? You know, you can be a banker, you could work in insurance and you can have um, a big influence on what your employer does. Because, you know, employers listen to their staff, you know, because they, they have a hard time finding staff these days. So if you say, why don't we have a wildflower meadow at work? Or why don't we have, you know, stop cutting our grass so often? You know, why don't we plant some trees? Why don't we, you know, so, so there's a lot we can do um, to influence these bigger organizations, you know, that can actually do things at scale and and write your TD and bang on the door and say, what are you doing about biodiversity? You know, talk to your counselors. What are you doing about biodiversity in my area? All those things are, you know, mean that you have agency. You're doing something about it. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're potentially being part of the solution here. You are being part of the solution. I'd love to get your opinion on something here, which is, um, so like carbon credits, right? So let's just yep. say someone decides to, I'm, I'm an organization and I'm going to build a giant native forest in Ireland. And this is native and it's, I'm doing it in line with nothing other than biodiversity or I'm yep. rewilding a bog and it's huge. Mm-hmm. And then corporations then can come in and buy credits. They can offset their carbon emissions mm-hmm. by buying credits in the, in these forests. Like, wh- what do you think of that as, a, as an overall concept? Do you think it's workable or is it a little bit, is it greenwashing? Well, first and foremost, we need to be making sure that we're reducing fossil fuels. There's no substitute yeah. for getting out of the fossil fuel game. So anyone who's using offsets to avoid um, getting rid of, you know, reducing their fossil fuels, that's that's not appropriate. Um, and if you like think about- I don't about, want a Ryanair forest. Do you know what y- I mean? Well, it, it's, it's just not going to work, right? If you think about the yeah. amount of land that we have and, you know, how much land you'd have to plant under forest to soak up all of the fossil fuel emissions that we're currently emitting and that we would continue to emit in the future if we didn't reduce, there just isn't enough land. So, so it's not- a substitute in no way is it a substitute for reducing fossil fuels um so i think we need to be careful about carbon credits there is a role yeah. for carbon credits you know there will be some fossil fuel emissions that we potentially can't avoid um, and we should be saving you know our land-based solutions for those real unavoidable um um um, fossil fuel emissions, you know, for the credits for those. So, you know, I think land is going to become highly, highly contested because of the many, the, the many needs that we're going to have going forward. You know, we're going to, we're going to still need food from our land. Mm-hmm. We're going to need, um, home for wildlife. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we need to keep nature in our landscapes. We need forests to suck carbon out of the air. Um, we're going to need some Sitka spruce for that, for sure. We're also going to need native forests and woodlands. Are Sitka spruce good for carbon, are they? they they're very fast growing and you can, they, they are very efficient okay. at pulling carbon out of the air. Okay. But once you cut the Sitka spruce down, um, if that wood is not used in, you know, furniture or houses or some kind of permanent way, then the carbon is just released back out to the atmosphere again. Oh, like if it's used as paper or if it's used as, you know, chipboard or pallets yeah. or something kind of cheap that decays fast, um, then it just, yes. you know, you, you suck all that carbon out and then you release it all again. But if you keep planting Sitka spruce and use the wood in houses and furniture and long life products, then you can potentially build that up as a carbon store. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There a Nordic, there's a Nordic country at the moment. I don't know which one, but I believe they're building a wooden city. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And I imagine yeah. it's, it's because of that crack you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah I didn't exactly. know that. I thought Sitka spruce was just simply the root of all evil. I thought this was... It has know its a, uses. Use. No, it has its uses. Um, but what you don't want, I guess, is, you know, 100% of your forest being Sitka spruce. We need to think about diversifying. It destroys rivers, doesn't it? It destroys rivers and it acidifies the soil and all that type of stuff. Uh, with certain kinds of management, yep. If it's planted in the wrong place oh. and if it's and if it's managed in the wrong way, you know, then uh, it can cause that erosion um, and and pollution of rivers and things like that. So look, I think there we have to work with Sitka spruce. You know, it, it is a valuable species, but we really need to think about end of life use and we need to think about how we are working with it um, as a forest species. You know, are there ways of managing like um, closed canopy forestry where you don't do clear cutting, you don't do, you know, felling large numbers of trees at the same time you're felling in small groups Mm -hmm. and things like that which is much less damaging so you know we need to find ways of working with it i think and to get the most benefit from it but alongside that commercial you know intensive forestry we also need the the restoration of native woodlands and we need native woodland plantations and we need to manage those in sensible ways as well and plant them in places where they're not going to cause more damage Here's I'm going to ask you one last question because this is sure. something I find fascinating. So like so whenever I bring on academics, it can be a difficult thing because like you're a professor. So academics are like, I need to be careful that I stay within my remit here and that I don't speak out of place. And your thing is zoology. But you've spoken about so much. You're speaking about trees. You're speaking, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. you're going outside of this. And what I find interesting there is. How do you as an academic stay in your lane when there's not really such a thing as a lane because everything you do is ecosystem related? How can you say, I only talk about animals and then I don't talk about the animals that these plants live around? It seems to me like you're comfortable speaking about everything because it's ecosystem stuff you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I'm just really interested in the human interactions with nature as well. So that that brings me into the human and social side of things quite often. But I'll tell you how mm. I stay in my lane. Often pe- people will tell me if I get out of my lane. <laughs> okay. I get told all the time I'm out of my lane. But um, that's fine. As long as we have evidence to back up what we're saying, you know, and I'd be comfortable, you know, kind of digging up the evidence for, for most of the things that I've talked about today and saying, look, you know, there is evidence for this, um, you know, um, and I learn a lot from my colleagues. You know, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we I talk yeah. to colleagues across loads of different disciplines all the time. I'm co-supervising PhD students with a professor of French literature, with a professor of electronic wow. engineering, um, you know, with professors in botany and and zoology and geography. You know, so so I'm naturally interdisciplinary, I suppose. And you just have to know kind of um uh, you know, 
you do have to respect other disciplines as well mm -hmm. because they have their own norms and their own ways of um, scholarship and things like that, you know, that that it's really important to respect that and not to not to think that your discipline is, you know, over, yeah. you know, so much more important than anyone else's discipline. That's not just not the case. We need everyone pulling together to to come up with the solutions that we need for the future. So I think it's so important to be able to talk to to, you know, talk about subjects, bringing your unique perspective to um, yeah. a subject like, um, you know, like uh, mythology or whatever. You know, we can all contribute. Is there any emerging technology or emerging field that's given you a feeling of hope regarding the climate or biodiversity? There's lots, actually. I'm going to have to, a hard time picking now. Um, I think it's a one area that I'm finding fascinating at the moment is blue carbon. This idea that? that the the oceans and the organisms in the oceans can um, um, lock carbon away. So if you mm -hmm. think about seaweeds or algae that grow in the oceans, and the oceans are huge. Most of our planet yeah. is oceans, right? So and oceans are three dimensional. So you can get you know seaweeds and algae living. Um, you know, you can get a lot of a lot of matter in there. Um, so if we can figure out a way, well, we need to figure out where the carbon in the ocean goes. We don't even know that yet. Wow. So, you know, where is there a big carbon store at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or, you know, in, in these ocean sediments? What controls the release of carbon from ocean sediments and what controls the sequestration of carbon into those into those sediments? There's something called, you know, the, there's the carbon ocean pump, you know, that mm -hmm. we, you know so, so there's so much about ocean carbon that we don't understand. And the more we understand it, the better we'll be able to then kind of, you know, figure out how to manage it and how to figure out how to get our oceans, you know, doing even more for us than they currently do. Because um, they've currently soaked up a lot of the temperature mm -hmm. rise that we would have felt otherwise. And of all of course, that's gone yeah. into our big ocean. And ocean's like a massive storage heater. So all that temperature rise um, has gone into the oceans um, and it's changing how the oceans function. So we really do need to understand that carbon sink. So I think there's, there's areas there which are really fascinating. Things like mangroves hold more carbon. These are like coastal forests. Um, they hold more carbon than tropical rainforests. And even our salt marshes here in Ireland have huge amounts of carbon in them. Wow. Um, so so I think that, you know, we've got great potential here. We are an ocean country, you know, to to exploit what we have and, you know, and find the solutions. Wind as well, yeah. Yeah, find solutions to the problems that we have. So I think that's that's one big one that I'm excited about. Something that got me feeling quite optimistic. I spoke to two scientists a couple of years back, and what they're doing is studying how Ireland can take waste from our cheese and dairy industry to capture the emissions of decomposing waste of the dairy industry, which is huge, and then use that for fuel and biodiesel that can really run the country. Look, we need to get more efficient at everything we do. So this idea of, you know, having a circular economy, so taking waste streams from one area of the economy and turning it into a resource that you can exploit or displace fossil fuels, you know, that, that has to be done. Um, and that's the whole, I guess, the foundation of the bioeconomy, you know, turning these instead of using fossil fuels we use yeah. wastes from food and you know animal waste and things like that and turn that into useful products like plastics and you know all the kinds of chemicals that we can't seem to live without these days you know we we need to find those somewhere else if we're not going to use fossil fuels for those so i you know i think there's great potential there for um i guess making more efficient use of the things that we have and and not throwing away stuff so you know when you're Going back to, I guess, where we started thinking about, you know, the 1950s or the 1980s, we didn't throw mm. away stuff, you know, we no. reuse stuff all the time. Biscuit tin full of needles. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. If you got a biscuit, like, but it, that's one little small thing that pisses exactly. me off. Is when you go to the to Dunn's or Aldi or wherever at Christmas, right? Yeah. And you see 
the Quality Street. Yeah. And it's, I look at Quality Street and I go, I shouldn't be able to buy two Quality Streets for a tenner. That yeah, shouldn't yeah. exist because when I grew up, Quality Street came in a tin container and yeah. it never left the house. Exactly right. It was, it was a valuable thing. <laughs> They're not valuable anymore. They're just big no. plastic tubs and you buy three yeah. for a tenner. And now Quality Street has no meaning anymore. Yeah. And I know it's silly because it's Quality Street, but yeah. it's turning into beef. I need my quality street to be sustainable. I want to keep that yep. tin. I want that tin to be important. Boil it all down to we buy too much stuff. But milk used to be delivered in glass bottles. And then you get yep. the glass bottles to the milkman the next day and they were refilled. Mm-hmm. We, we had, there's a lot of stuff where we already had this shit sorted. We yep. had this stuff sorted. Yep. And we've managed, now we look at it. It's like when we're speaking about meadows there. We have an idea of what beauty is. And this beauty that uh, in meadows is, that's a construct that was made in the 17th century. And mm-hmm. we need to look at wildflower, which we see as ugly and untidy as being the new beauty. Yeah. And I think too, we need to look back at your milk comes in a glass bottle and you replace it or you hang on to that, that tin. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. instead of seeing it as that's backwards, that's in the past, that's what my grandparents did. You go, no, that's actually progress. Maybe not everything gets better all the time. Maybe there mm-hmm. was a point in time where we had certain shit figured out and that was the right thing and we've gone past it. And once yeah. it becomes unsustainable, no, that's actually the bad thing we're doing now and we need to go back to a bit of scarcity again. I, I totally get it. Yeah. It's a tough one. It is. And then when people do live like that, it tends to be really, really expensive. Like. I started buying, I started getting annoyed at myself for how much cling film I was using, you know? Yeah. So I bought the reusable beeswax um, yeah. cloth, but it was, I could only buy that because I could afford it. Yeah. I bought that because I had the income to afford beeswax cloth. The person who doesn't have that money, they're buying 99p cling film in the pound shop, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So how do we make this stuff available yeah. for everybody and currently yeah. for it not to be a luxury item sustainable right. products are now luxury items that people use in a capitalistic way to show off how middle class they are yeah yeah you know what I, mean? I agree yeah yeah totally but i mean there's there's loads you can do with you know and actually make life cheaper for yourself you know everybody has takeaway occasionally keep the takeaway containers them, don't throw yeah. them away you know they're very handy there's simple things like that and you know eating eating less meat is good for your pocket good for your health good for the environment it's i don't believe in being extreme you know and saying you know every you know you're not allowed to eat beef anymore you know i don't i don't think that's a helpful argument yeah um but saying you know cut down on what you eat you know just just have it as a treat have it you know once a month once a Mm -hmm. week um i'm gonna leave you go so ivan thank you so much that was such a wonderful chat it was so much crack thank you to professor ivan buckley for that wonderful chat i hope you took something from that i hope it inspired some hope I hope it inspired the type of hope that creates action I'll catch you next week most likely with a hot take of some description I'll be back from my tour um, and in the meantime I'm gonna I'm gonna roll around in my continental quilt and eat muesli and chumessin sausages dog bless Hold up, what was that? 
boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.